BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with The China Project. Subscribe to Access from The China Project to get, well, access. Access to not only our great daily newsletter, but all the original writing on our website at thechinaproject.com. We've got reported stories, essays, and editorials, great explainers and trackers, regular columns, and of course, a growing library of podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim peoples in China's Xinjiang region, to Beijing's ambitious plans to shift the Chinese economy onto a post-carbon footing. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. A couple of episodes back, Bloomberg chief economist Tom Orlick recommended a book on our podcast, and he said that he thought it really stood out from the pack of China books that he's read of late. Surveillance State by Wall Street Journal reporters Josh Chin and Lisa Lin. I echoed him then, and I mentioned that I'd be talking to them about the book, and I am delighted that that's exactly what we will be doing on the show this week. Surveillance State Inside China's Quest to Launch a New Era of Social Control is a book that is at once very powerful and scary and, and moving and perhaps surprisingly really quite subtle. It, it complicates and often challenges uh, the narrative that, in my estimation, has taken root in American and Western thinking on China and its immense surveillance apparatus. It goes way beyond just static descriptions of the systems China has deployed and raises deep, difficult, and, and really profound questions about cultural differences, about the mindset and the assumptions uh, behind Chinese technocracy and the urge to social engineering, about interaction between China and the West and unintended consequences, and really a whole lot more. The book also has just a really great narrative pace. It introduces really memorable characters with fascinating personal stories. It is just reported from really all over the world. And of course, it is beautifully written. Josh Chin, Lisa Lin, welcome to Seneca. Welcome back to you, Josh. And congratulations to both of you for this truly excellent book. Thanks, Kaiser. It's always always a pleasure, and that does. Uh, and thank you for the very kind words. Thanks a lot, Kaiser. Yeah, so let's jump right in. Um, Josh, Lisa, I suspect that there will be readers of your book who might somehow read it as a sophisticated species of whataboutism. That your inclusion of chapters, both exploring how surveillance is sometimes abused by American law enforcement and linking in various ways the rise of China's surveillance to American actors is really meant to subtly undermine and dilute 
our righteous criticism of China's excesses, especially in Xinjiang. So, Josh, how would you answer that? And perhaps you could also explain why you opted to complicate the whole narrative on Chinese surveillance tech rather than just, you know, report on technological oppression across China. Right. Well, you know, I think I think it's pretty simple, actually, our approach to the story, which is we really just wanted to develop and then and then describe the most comprehensive picture of China's surveillance state that we could. Mm-hmm. And I think what you discovered when we when we looked into it, I mean, obviously, our, some of our reporting for this book began with the Wall Street Journal, and that included some early reporting on what was happening in Xinjiang and, and the extremely disturbing and dystopian elements that we discovered there. But and, you know, as we looked more deeply into it, what we discovered was, yes, the Chinese surveillance state waves a deeply, terrifyingly dystopian stick, but it also dangles a pretty appealing carrot. Its aim is to sort of make life simpler, more convenient, safer, more predictable through the power of, of, of data and AI for Chinese citizens. And, um, and it is, in fact, using a lot of American technology to do that. So the book uh, is reported from, as I say, uh, many very different places. The opening chapters focus on Xinjiang, but then there are chapters about Hangzhou, for example, and uh, safe city policing there and things like that. There are also chapters in Uganda uh, and lots in in the in Silicon Valley and in the United States uh, more generally in in New York. Uh, how did you guys divide the labor? Who who's who should I, in other words, direct questions to about which parts? Lisa? Sure. So Josh has done a ton of prior reporting in Xinjiang. So the the way the book was split up was Josh took a lot of the more sinister aspects of state surveillance while, you know, I dug into what we thought might be the more attractive and alluring aspects um, or what we discovered to be the more attractive and alluring aspects Mm -hmm. uh, of the surveillance state. So the same systems that were used in Xinjiang could have been used in other, you know, major Chinese cities in ways that residents actually found beneficial. So that was kind of the DV. And and I've always been a corporate reporter. So a lot of the corporate mm-hmm. uh, supply chain stuff uh, came down to me. Okay. What about New York? Um, who did that? Those, those sections in, in New York about the public defender who took on the TJ Maxx case that we'll talk about? That would have been me. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I did... Xinjiang, Uganda, New York, Chen Zhisen stuff, and like the most of the elite politics stuff, and then Lisa was tech, Chinese American tech, and um, and Hangzhou. Okay, fantastic, fantastic. Yeah, and then we split some of the chapters like privacy or you know the Panopticon type of right. findings. Josh, you open your book with, as I said, with a discussion of Xinjiang, focusing on a guy named Tahir Hamut, a Uyghur documentary filmmaker and poet from Urumqi who managed to get out with his family before the jaws really closed, and who told you quite a bit about his experience. And it's through his eyes that we see the way that Xinjiang became, after 2017, really the apotheosis of the technological surveillance regime that you describe. He and his wife, Marhaba, go through the whole gamut, from facial recognition to fingerprinting to blood drawn, presumably, for DNA and other biometrics. And he even recounts the intake form from the Integrated Joint Operations Platform. We actually had a show all about that when that information was leaked a couple of years ago. Can you talk about some of what he experienced and how you reported it out? I mean, for instance, were the details of that form 
from his memory, or did he take a picture of it? Or did you get a copy of that form? Because you know you have it in real detail. Right. So Tahir is someone who we were sort of put in touch with actually after our first trip to Xinjiang. I had gone there in, in sort of late 2017 with a colleague, Clement Burge, who does who does video. Mm-hmm. And we had actually, you know, when we had gone to Xinjiang, we had really not any idea what was happening there. We'd sort of heard rumors that they were rolling out, you know, this this, you know, tons of of sort of cutting edge, you know, sci-fi surveillance equipment. And um, but we didn't know why. Uh, or, 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 or what the whole situation was or whether that was actually even really true. And so we drove in and, and we discovered it was true and it was, it was actually much sort of much darker than we imagined it, it would be. And, and, the, and the, obviously there was a real story there. And so we came back to Beijing and we started looking around for people who could help tell us what was happening there, right? And at the time there were only a handful of people. In fact, Tahir might have been the only person who we could find who had witnessed the rollout of all of this, but then got got out and could who could speak freely. I mean, we'd sort of been put in touch with him by some Uyghur activists who knew him. And, and he told us his story. At first, he actually didn't want to use his name because he was really worried what was going to happen to his family members if he did tell us using his name. But then he he later reconsidered. He realized that the the story would be much more powerful with his name attached to it. And so- mm-hmm. On his own, he, he let us do that. And so, you know, what happened to him, some people describe him as, as the greatest living Uyghur poet. He's certainly highly respected and really well known. And at the time, he had actually, uh, when this all of this was being rolled out in, in Xinjiang in sort of late 2016, early 2017, he'd been, he'd actually been planning to try to leave and go to the US. Right. Because uh, he could, he'd sort of seen, he'd been around for a long time. He's a very savvy guy. He had been a, a student leader in the in the nineteen eighty nine protests, and um, and he could, he, you know, he he knew, he could see what was what was coming down the down the pike. And but he actually he kind of didn't get out in time, right? right. And so this vice started to close around Uyghurs, especially like him, who were you know intellectuals who had passports who had traveled abroad, and. One day he got called in by the police. They said they wanted to uh, take his fingerprints, which hit, hit him and his wife, Merhaba, which to them, obviously ridiculous because they'd given their fingerprints more times than they could count by then, but they didn't really have a choice. So they went in and they they basically had to do the full biometric profile, right? They had their f- fingerprints taken, but also their blood taken. They were asked to read an article from a Uyghur newspaper so that their voices could be recorded. They had 3D scans of their faces and the sides of their heads made, right? So that facial recognition cameras could identify them more easily. And it kind of slowly dawned on, on Dahir that, you know, something, you know, really, really terrible was happening uh, or was about to happen. And around this time, was, he was hearing rumors at the time, again, only rumors that people were being sent off to school. No one really knew what that meant. But at a certain point, one of his closest friends who had actually been in the U.S. and come back to Xinjiang in the middle of this was taken, was dis- disappeared. And that's when he sort of realized exactly how, how serious it was for him. He started sleeping with clothes next to his bed because he'd heard stories about Uyghurs just being taken out in their underwear. Right. So anyway, he so he got out and, and I don't want to give away the whole story, uh, but, but we got in touch with him and he actually did, when we were talking to him, and he actually had brought a copy of that population data collection form with him. Ah. And um and, and for uh, for those who don't know, you know, the one of the ways that they that the police were collecting data on Uyghurs in the early days of the surveillance rollout was uh, just with these paper forms that mm-hmm. uh, that every Uyghur had to fill out and it had details about obviously 
dietary things right but yeah prayer how often they pray where they pray people who they knew abroad that sort of thing yeah yeah frightening it's a really harrowing account um and it's really well well done Lisa, you reported, obviously, a lot of the non-Xinjiang sections of this um, from cities like Hangzhou. Uh, Can you talk about the awareness, if any, in other parts of China of the extent of Xinjiang surveillance uh, from people outside of the region? Do they know? Did they care? Yeah, so what we discovered is the people outside of Xinjiang are pretty much oblivious to what is happening in Xinjiang itself. And that's, you know, of no fault of their own. It's really the Chinese Communist Party's propaganda machinery and system of internet censorship. Because a lot of the Western media outlets have been aggressively reporting on Xinjiang, but China's Great Firewall essentially has blocked almost every Western media outlet out there. Right. Um, and for this reason, you know, if you are a Chinese person in Shanghai or Beijing or Guangdong, you know, what you're consuming or what you're seeing on the Chinese internet is really like the party's message of what you want to hear about Xinjiang. So it would be the same sort of message that they're saying now, that in Xinjiang, it's a re-education campaign, but you know, in this campaign, what we're doing is to empower Uyghurs by teaching them Mandarin, helping them understand like Chinese law a lot better, or giving them jobs, you know, conveniently kind of leaving out that sometimes at these re-education centers, it's like forcible assimilation or right. uh, in some cases, you know, many Uyghurs have no choice on what job they're sent to do, the forced labor aspect of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think for some people who might be properly horrified by the level of surveillance and other means of repression in Xinjiang, who might even be willing to use the word totalitarian to describe that regime there, uh, there is still this belief that this is very specific to that region or perhaps to other, quote-unquote, restive non-Han majority areas of China like Tibet. But others are quite sure that Xinjiang is just a proving ground for these new technologies and these new policies and that this approach will inevitably get rolled out to the rest of China. How do the two of you come down on that question? Do you think that Xinjiang is sui generis, or do you think that it is just the beginning? Well, I mean, actually, it's already happened. If if you look at the the pandemic response, COVID zero, it's um, I mean, one of the most sh- uh, striking experiences I had just before I was <laughs> expelled from China in early twenty twenty, uh, which happened just at the beginning of the pandemic, was the way that the party rolled out its its COVID controls. Mm-hmm. You know, in my apartment building in Beijing, my apartment complex in Beijing, just like every apartment complex, um, you know, and it has, it's large, it's sprawling, it has a bunch of entrances. All of it, all those entrances were closed off. So there's only, you know, one way in and out, uh, right. which is like a, a method that was pioneered in Xinjiang. It's known as, um, you know, feng bi shi guan li, right? Closed mm-hmm. management. And the idea being that you just want to be able to know who's going in and out whenever, you know, they're giving us passes, uh, to, you know, to go out and, and come back, uh, which is which is something that, that Uyghurs are, are familiar with. Now you have basically a situation in which, like Xinjiang, the an entire population is being tracked, right? It used to be unique to Xinjiang where mm-hmm. every single person in, in a group, every member of a group was being intensively surveilled. Now that is that is happening across the country with, with, with COVID. Um, so a lot of the methods that you saw being implemented in Xinjiang first of, of, of are, you know, being experienced by Chinese people across the country. 
Yeah, my colleague Jeremy described it as a biosecurity state in the making. Lisa? To add on to what Josh said, um, let's not forget about the health check booths that have sprung out in every Chinese city at every street corner. It is eerily similar to the police stations or like the checks and the, you know, the metal detectors and the barriers that have sprung up in Xinjiang several years earlier as well, just to verify your identity. And in this case, you know, outside of Xinjiang, the wrong color code could lead you to detention. Whereas in mm. Xinjiang, it was like, you know, the wrong predictive policing AI assessment could lead you to a re-education camp. And do you think that the dry run in Xinjiang uh, was responsible for the rapidity with which they were able to roll out these sorts of public health-focused surveillance efforts? It definitely set a model that was much faster and easier to replicate. And, you know, along the same vein, you also saw like police uh, outside of Xinjiang kind of use AI-enabled surveillance cameras to track, you know, the close contacts or the trails of COVID patients, uh, people who tested positive and they're trying to distinguish where this person has been, who he has met. You know, it's the same sort of spying and surveillance techniques that you saw in Xinjiang rolled out on a much broader scale. And I think just having that trial in Xinjiang definitely brought a lot of understanding on how these systems could work better and avoid mistakes. So we've seen it spread now from Xinjiang to the rest of China. There's no question at all that some of these technologies and approaches developed in China are now also finding their way to other countries. You guys have an excellent chapter, I flicked at it, about the struggles of the opposition leader, Bobby Wine, uh, as he goes up against M70 and the surveillance apparatus that he has now in Uganda, courtesy of Huawei. But one question seems to be, and this is one that I've often wondered about myself, is whether China is actively pushing that approach, pushing you know the enabling of tech to these other countries, or whether it's more a matter of pull. Uh, so first, does it matter whether it's push or pull? And, and is this a matter of, you know, enterprises wanting the sales and uh, not Beijing, you know, actively encouraging them to sell this stuff. Uh, is Beijing facilitating this or some combination? Josh? Uh, yes. I mean, I think that is actually the answer, right? I think it is all of those things. It is push. It is pull. It is um, being driven by the you know, incredible profit motive of companies like Huawei, but also by by Beijing's um, desire uh, to to have these systems out there. I, I think you could take Uganda as a, as an example. Um, you know, this was a, a situation in which um, you know Huawei has been in Uganda, like it's been in lots of places of, in Africa for years, and I think it was around 2015. They had sort of started to develop what what they call safe city systems, right? Which are just right. sort of state surveillance systems, and they were sort of seeding the the ground in Uganda. They actually gifted a, a sort of starter kit to Museveni, um, just a few cameras, uh, just to kind of whet his appetite in 2015, and then they didn't mm. really do anything after that. But a year or two later, Museveni sort of found he was having trouble with the opposition. There's the opposition leader, Bobby Wan, who you mentioned, who's this very charismatic singer who was really rallying the youth and, and Museveni felt threatened. And so he then tasked his security chief with finding him a system that would help exert more political control. 
and you know it wasn't just Huawei who bid. There was a there was a Canadian company that also bid on the project. So mm-hmm. you know he didn't go straight to Huawei, but you know he obviously knew Huawei had these systems. And in the bidding process, the the Chinese ambassador got involved, hmm. and so um, and it was acting as a sort of auxiliary salesman. You know, once things got to a certain point, he invited the Ugandan police to send a delegation out to China. They visited Huawei's headquarters, but they also visited the Ministry of Public Security building Mm. next to Tiananmen Square. And they were sort of given a tutorial and how, or at least a demonstration in how these systems work. And then very shortly after that, uh, everyone went back to Uganda and they signed the deal. Yeah. So there's elements of push and pull in there for sure then, and facilitation by Beijing for sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Toward toward what end though, Josh? I mean, Jessica Chen Weiss, who was on this program a couple of weeks ago, had this memorable phrase that she's used that was in the title of this piece that she uh she she published in Foreign Affairs a couple of years ago that we interviewed her on making the world safe for autocracy. Do you largely agree that that's what we're really seeing here, that China basically, it's not that they want the whole world to become autocratic, it's just that they want tolerance for autocratic regimes that right I mean that's a question I think we wrestled with as we mm-hmm. were as we were looking at all of this I mean if you I mean if you if you read what you know Xi Jinping says you know, I mean he, he does talk in sort of grand terms about the Chinese people sort of being willing to contribute new forms of governance to humanity and, and that sort of thing so you know it, and it's you know I could, you can see how someone would read that and think oh she Xi Jinping wants to remake the world order with with you know China's system on top right it's hard to say for sure, obviously, what's in the mind of, of Xi Jinping. I think if you look at the way they act and the way they speak generally, it's socialism with Chinese characteristics, right? Like it's not a, it's not the sort of evangelical workers of the world unite that the Soviet Union was was espousing, or you know, democracy and freedom for everyone that the United States uh, promotes, right? It's not a, you know, it's not a sort of world conquering ideology, right? And and you know, and if you and if you examine just the, the way that China sells these systems abroad, they don't really care how governments use the systems. You know, they're not um, they're not coming in and saying you have to do it this way. And they say, you know, they offer an example. They'll give you a tutorial. They'll you know they'll tell you how they do it. But I think what they ultimately want, I think Jessica is, is I think her argument holds a lot of water in the sense that what mm-hmm. they what they want is they want it to be okay for authoritarian governments to use these technologies to exert control, right? For it to be accepted as a model. And, you know, I mean, it's similar actually in, in, in many ways, it mirrors the, um, their arguments about internet sovereignty, right? Yeah. The idea is not that everyone has to censor the internet the way China does, but that if governments want to censor, they should be able to. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, what Jessica you know, her statement is a very big one, and I don't have the answers to that. But what I can tell you from our reporting is that every time, you know, a democracy or if China manages to sell one of these systems abroad, it kind of helps the Communist Party legitimize its own system to its own citizens, because you always mm-hmm. see state media playing up such reporting. And it's played up as, you know, a technological innovation of China has gone global and it's all part of the building the national pride and building China as a strong and a big country in all areas, including like tech. Uh, and in terms of the corporate front, and you flicked at it earlier as well, there is a real need for China to have these systems succeed overseas. Because if you think about it, uh, the world's biggest surveillance camera makers are Chinese. They're Hikvision right. and Dahua. 
And at some point, China, because China now already has more than 400 million cameras in its country, demand for cameras is going to peak out and saturate. And these companies are going to have to find export markets to keep their revenue and the profit humming. Um, so that's that's a reason why it is really to China's advantage to be pushing these systems overseas, regardless of like governance governance models or not. So, Lisa, you guys have a fantastic chapter on smart city solutions that Chinese companies are promoting, not only you know in cities in China but also abroad. Uh, it sets things up really nicely by presenting a dilemma, a, a double-edged sword with obvious and very real value on the one hand, and also a lot of riding roughshod on the you know privacy rights of individuals on the other. Uh, can you illustrate this with a couple of, of examples from your reporting? That's an excellent point. Sure. When Josh and I first started looking into the topic, you know, we had come into it with the assumption that all sorts of state surveillance was negative and nefarious in nature. And the more we dug into the topic, what we discovered was, you know, there are Chinese citizens who really think these systems are very beneficial. And I guess, like, to illustrate this point, we traveled to a city called Hangzhou, which uh, is on the eastern coast of China, two hours away from Shanghai. Uh, Hangzhou is well known for being one of China's seven ancient capitals, but in the last few decades, its growth has been, like every city on the East Coast, like very break- breakneck. Hangzhou has seen its resident population triple just in the last 10 years alone, from 3.6 million to almost 11 million in 2020. And even though the city's population has tripled, Hangzhou still has legacy road infrastructure, so that means the road networks through the city has not changed. So instead of 3.6 million people using the same roads, you have 11 million people, which has actually become a real problem for Hangzhou residents. Like if you go to Hangzhou in 2016 or 2017, you get caught in jams um, on their highways for hours and you're barely moving and you realize what a big problem it was. So, So Hangzhou actually has been very embracing of technology to try and overcome some of its more current issues uh, in city governance. Mm. And this is where Hangzhou has really gone all in in the smart city model. So essentially the same systems that are being used in Xinjiang, a lot of the data mining and the surveillance cameras are used in Hangzhou to do things like optimize traffic, for example. So you would take the feeds from security cameras installed at road intersections in many Hangzhou places, and you would combine that with the GPS data of the cars traveling on the road. Mm-hmm. And you use that to make sure traffic lights are green during peak hour when traffic flow is heavy. Or you would use the security camera system to make sure that the traffic police get automated alerts of when a traffic accident happens so they can rush to the scene and kind of clear the flow. And then traffic gets going again. Right. Ambulances. I remember one example from your book about you know ambulances having all the lights turned green as they rushed a, you know an injured person to a hospital. Exactly, and and you know traffic seems like a very small thing when it comes to a life and death situation, but that's the other thing the system can do. We spoke to a, a man whose mother had fallen into the river in Hangzhou, and there were a couple of alert pass- passerbys that had kind of fished her out. Once she was out. The ambulance taking her to the hospital essentially turned on a switch on its system that was linked to this AI traffic management platform. And what it did for the ambulance was to turn all the lights green on the way from where from from where it was going to to the hospital. And that meant she got medical attention in half the time it would have took 
you know, the ambulance to get her there with a, no system at all. And it's not just, you know, traffic management, right? Um, in Hangzhou, we've seen Hangzhou police use the same sort of systems for law and order. So spotting criminal suspects on the street, um, drug pushers, for example, all the type of people uh, that as parents or as like residents of the city, you might not want to see, or you might not want to have walking next to you. So there is this idea that threads throughout the book that there might be a difference between quote-unquote Western and Chinese ideas about privacy, about surveillance, about the rights of individuals and the interests of broader society. Uh, various characters throughout the book are in dialogue with this question, uh, about this question. And this is something I, I've also wrestled with. I'm sure you guys have. Uh, I've wrestled with it since, certainly since like the, the late 1990s when I started working in the internet sector in China. I remember one of your characters, I think it was a guy in Hangzhou, uh, said something to the effect of, Chinese have a different idea of privacy. Most don't understand it, and it's hard to get worked up about privacy if you don't understand it. And the artist, Xu Bing, uh, who you spoke with, obviously, he started off with a very similar assumption, uh, more more about him and this film project that you guys uh, wrote about, uh, made entirely from surveillance footage uh, in just a bit. But we've also seen huge reactions though, to privacy violations or, or even to the suggestion, I mean, one even made by my former boss at Baidu, Robin Lee, that Chinese people are generally, you know, willing to trade privacy for increased convenience. And obviously, as, you know, Josh talked about, COVID has forced this into the bigger conversation. Uh, we are all, though, I think, you know, people who, like, like you and me, uh, all of us, uh, are conditioned to be very wary of these kinds of, of sweeping generalizations. And, and yet sometimes it's, it's hard not to conclude that expectations around privacy, the, the zealousness with which people guard it, might be quite different uh, between different countries. You know, uh, this is not just, of course, I mean, there's, there's, there's reasons for this. I mean, you know, Chinese maybe because... Well, they're just used to a more intrusive state um, and maybe it's not out of some, you know, innate cultural trait. Uh, but anyway, how, how did all of this shake out for, for the two of you? Did you move in one direction or the other in the course of your reporting this book? And, and where did you end up? Maybe I'll start and then Josh can kind of end off sure. uh, as well. I don't think the fundamental notion of privacy is different between chi Chinese and Western societies. I mean, no one mm -hmm. likes to be watched, right? It's eerie, it's creepy, it's not a great feeling. I think what is the difference between the West and China is the the base of awareness, of privacy awareness. You know, the, mm. the definitions of privacy in the West have been well established for a while. You had the right to privacy from Brandeis in the 1890s. And, you right. know, it's only in the last couple of decades that Chinese people are, are beginning to understand what privacy means. So because of that, there is a different level of awareness in both societies, um, leading to kind of different re reactions and attitudes. And on top of that, most of the people who really value their privacy in China are in the first tier cities, in the largest cities in China. Half of China's population, they're not in cities yet, or they're not in the large cities. So that kind of means as well that you know their focus in life, if you think about the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the pyramid sure. with you know, like physiological needs at the bottom and self-actualization at the top, they're still at the lower rungs of that pyramid. That means, you know, if you're constantly thinking about putting 
food on your plate or your security or where their next paycheck is coming from, you know, thinking about privacy is the last thing on your mind. So, Josh, I mentioned the artist Xu Bing and this film. Uh, you know, Xu Bing is really one of the best-known contemporary artists that China has produced. Uh, this hyper-reality video project, a, a film called Dragonfly Eyes, uh, which he made um, or was you know so able to complete because of this product that the the internet company Qihu had released uh, called Water Droplet Livestream. Can you talk about that phenomenon and about the film and and what that shows you? Yeah, actually, I mean, that, the this part of the book is is um, was actually what the, this story in the book was was one of the most most surprising the way it sort of unfolded. I'd actually run into to Xu Bing at a, a Columbia University event in Beijing. I, I guess he you know, he had spent some time there, and this was in uh, I believe 2016. And he, I was just asking what he was working on, and he mentioned, "Oh, this I'm doing this film made out of surveillance footage," and I'd. You know, at the time we weren't really reporting on surveillance, so I just filed it away in the back of my mind as something interesting. And then we started doing the surveillance reporting. I, you know, I remembered Xu Bing, and I and so I looked him up and asked him about it. And basically, what happened was he had always had it in his mind, or for a long time had had it in his mind that he wanted to make a fictional film out of surveillance footage because he he just thought that the way that people appeared in surveillance footage was nat- was natural in a way that actors never could be. And he was just intrigued by that idea. And, and he, as an artist, he's really into, he's really into this idea of sort of transformation, right. And, and then of sort of uh, decon- and recontextualizing uh, images. And, and so he always wanted to do this, but he never could because it was just impossible to get enough of that footage. Right. I mean, he had friends at like CCTV and he had friends who like the police department, you know, in Beijing, but he could, and they would give him some surveillance footage, but it was just never enough to make it work. Right. You just need immense, immense amounts of this to, to pull it off. And so one day, one of his research assistants had stumbled on this, this website called uh, water droplet live stream, uh, mm-hmm. Which was basically a website that that Chihu had set up as a was a web platform that that Chihu had set up basically for its um, consumer home security cameras, right? They were internet connected, and the idea was that you could um, you could stream your video footage from your, your footage from your security cameras online, so you could check it remotely. Right. Right. Um, and, you know, I mean, other companies do this. Right. But it's but other companies do it. It's a secure non in a not secure, non-public way. Right. So only you as the owner of that camera can see that that footage where she whose default setting was public. Right. And so <laughs> a lot of people either intentionally or unintentionally were broadcasting their security footage uh, onto this platform. And it just became it was. I mean, it was fascinating. I, I looked at it myself. I mean, it's just totally, it's hard to tear yourself away, right? You have sudden, you just had this like amazing view into these thousands and thousands of scenes, like apartment buildings, businesses, um, yoga studios, I mean, dance studios all over all over China. I mean, it was, it was incredibly creepy, but but yeah. also yeah. fascinating, right? And so he he immediately started downloading all this footage um, in mass and, and used that as a, a to make his film. And you know, at the time, uh, you know, talking about privacy, we you know, I sort of in my mind, this was an example exactly of how Chinese people don't care about privacy, right? Like um, because here they are broadcasting this stuff. It's all, you know, it's like basically become a form of entertainment. Right. Where voyeurs can meet exhibitionists, right? 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and um, but what was really fascinating is, I mean, not too long after Shubing finally finished his film and was taking it around to film festivals, a woman went online with this post on Weibo, and it was just just excoriated. Chihu for, for putting this site up. And, and she had cited all these examples of, I mean, really creepy stuff, right? Of like, of cameras showing kind of young girls in, in, in like dance classes and that sort of thing. And, and, um, and it became, and it blew up. It became this huge controversy and eventually Chihu had to shut it down. And, uh, and, and so, and to me, it was this really eye opening kind of, or it, it was one of these moments that just showed me like, no matter how much you think, you know, China, you know, how many years you've spent there. <laughs> you really don't. Um, and that did actually force us to start rethinking how we thought about privacy in China. Was that, you think, an evolution toward that? Or do you think that that was just a, a, something that had ever been present? It was just maybe, you know, the accretion of, or maybe the, the filtering in of ideas about privacy from outside of China? Or what, what do you think was responsible for this? Yeah, you know, I, mean, I think it's a it's a tough to say exactly and tough to trace it. I mean, it's certainly, I mean, there are definitely, as as Lisa said, right, in, in sort of the first tier cities, you know, amongst sort of well well educated Chinese people, especially people who are educated overseas. I think there is, you know, there is that sense of privacy that the people have picked up and and are kind of importing to China in a way, right? I mean, the you know, as we note in the book, the the word for privacy, right, yinsu, didn't even. Appear appear in the Xinhua, the official Xinhua Chinese dictionary until the 1990s, right? So it is it is a newish concept. See, right? I mean, I'd always heard that and thought it was just one of those BS old canards. Oh, there is no Chinese word for privacy. Really? It wasn't in the dictionary in, in until the 90s? Not until the 90s. I think 1997 or 90s. I figured, I think it was 1997. So, so it is like, I mean, it is a new, fresh concept. And I think I think Lisa is right in the sense that once people become aware of it, they start thinking about it, they experience it in the same way, sure. right? At, at that fundamental sort of reptile brain level, right? <laughs> where you just, where, you know, you just, you feel like creeped out and violated. But I think what's interesting in China, actually, and, and, and I mean, when you were at Baidu, I'm sure you experienced this um, vividly. Uh, after the Robin Lee comments, but like, I it, actually it happened after I left. But <laughs> oh, was it after you left? Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Oh man, um, I was, you you dodged the bullet there. Um, I dodged a bunch of bullets, but hey. <laughs> <laughs> um, or or maybe the bullet struck because I wasn't there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but uh, <laughs> maybe very possible. Um, but you know, I think what we discovered was, um, you know. Although people do experience privacy at sort of fundamentally at the same level, I think in China, what's really fascinating is it has almost exclusively been focused on companies, right? Yeah. On, yeah. on, the, on the use of, of, on the company sort of abuse of, of, of personal data. And the government has really, I think, deftly sort of defined privacy as applying to companies, but not to the government. Um, I mean, there well, are definitely exceptions, but- Lisa, but- do you think that might be because, well, there's an element of fear in there. You can't talk about- governmental privacy intrusion, whereas you can direct the ire toward companies, you know, CCTV does it every March 15th, they, they call out some company for, for riding roughshod over people's privacy. Again, I think it boils down to government censorship of what happens, like mm-hmm. data breaches due to cyber leaks or like rogue employees selling data, right? That happens in both government and corporations. What's the difference is when it happens to 
a company like Alibaba or Baidu, it's well played up in state media. Whereas if it happens to the Shanghai police, for example, and we've seen that, we saw that recently with the Shanghai police where there was someone on the dark web essentially selling a billion people's worth of personal data. Um, yeah, I saw that. The data was basically from an unsecured database from the Shanghai Public Security Agency. That wow. wasn't reported in state press at all, but CCTV would play up in the past stories about caches of data that was stolen or that can be bought off the dark web, right? That has everything from your DD trail, like where you go on your DDs, your home, your office, to what you buy on Taobao, or who your contacts are on WeChat. All this was like happily played out by CCTV, whereas the government data breaches, typically there isn't, there isn't any, there isn't a sound on it uh, in the press. And I would, you know, just, just your, your question earlier about why now on the privacy awareness and this uptick, mm -hmm. it really mm -hmm. did kind of coincide with the rise of China becoming this cheap and excellent place to manufacture hardware, right? And then all of a sudden you had like millions of these water drop cameras available for like 80 kwai or 100 kwai that you could right. just install. Um, and also it coincided with the proliferation of apps, like internet apps, like Taobao, WeChat, everything that whenever you use it, you leave a data trail and that's just right. or more information for the government to collect. Absolutely. So I'm going to stay with the, the kind of deep questions for now. Uh, one that you got into, which I think really helped your book to stand out. It was about, you know, the relationship of Chinese people to technology itself and, and this propensity that I don't think we can really deny is often in evidence uh, for Chinese leaders, especially, you know, in post-Mao China, uh, to, to, to try to apply a kind of engineering mindset uh, to, to social or political problems. Uh, it's all very James Scott, you know, very seeing like a state, uh, this kind of scientistic or, or mechanistic mentality. I think it's pretty endemic to Chinese technocracy. Uh, there is one approach in particular that you emphasize in this book, which is systems engineering. Your book introduces us to cybernetics and its founding figure, Norbert Wiener, and the links between him and Chen Xuesen, who many listeners will know as the kind of U.S.-trained protege of Theodore von Karman, the father of modern Chinese rocketry and the nuclear program, and also Sung Jian, who many credit or, or blame, maybe more accurately, for the one-child policy. Uh, Josh, can you talk about how all of this connects to the surveillance state that we see in China today? Right. So um, I think probably one of the most fascinating figures we discovered in the course of doing this book is is Chen Shui-sen, right? And he is mm -hmm. he is well known as you as you know, both best known as the the sort of father of of the of China's rocket program and 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 he's doubly famous because prior to uh, becoming the father of China's rocket program, he was a very promising American or at least a US based uh, missile scientist who was who was sort of um accused by the McCarthy era FBI of being a Chinese spy and who then eventually, uh, as a result of that, uh, went back to China. So the interesting thing about Chen from, from the point of view of state surveillance is that during the period of time where the FBI was investigating him, he was confined to his home in Los Angeles and he basically couldn't do anything except for hang out in his library and read books. And one of the books he read um, was uh, a book called Cybernetics by Norbert Wiener, this a, a sort of 
child prodigy um, who who invented this new field, which and it's incredibly difficult to to explain. I'm not right. going to try to get into it. It's too, all about feedback loops and and you know how complex systems self correct and uh, how you can sort of program autonomous. Uh, well, yeah, you're right. It's hard to explain. I'm obviously, I'm, uh, <laughs> no, exactly. I mean, I think that, I mean, the, yeah, I mean, I think the simplest way to, to explain it is just it's it's basically that the sort of science of how information is used to exert control, right? Mm-hmm. Which and the the simplest idea, I mean, it basically uses sort of biological concepts and biological methods and applies them in, in the sort of technological way, right? The biggest example of this is modeling, right? And so, you know, the idea is that if you have a system or you have, you have a situation, right, like say a, uh, you're trying to shoot down an airplane, right? Um, and what you can do is you can collect data on the ways that airplanes fly, right? Fighter jets fly, right? And, you, and if you collect enough of that data, you can sort of model how a potential flight, how a pilot will potentially fly in a certain situation. And you can use that model that, to shoot them down basically to train your system to know how to respond in right exactly exactly and so so chincho said i mean he got he got deeply into this this concept and he sort of and and sort of thinking in terms of systems and how information affects systems and the ability to control systems and he used that in his work on rockets but then when he went to china he also his ultimate ambition was to use this on society right? right i mean society was the the ultimate engineering challenge to him and um, I mean, we can uh, you know we can get into how how accurate his application of these systems uh, actually was. Um, I mean, some people did blame him partly for the Great Leap famine uh, mm-hmm. because of his because he sort of misapplied his approach to agriculture, which was a topic he knew nothing about. But anyway, he he you know he had a lot of cachet in China. A lot of Communist Party leaders held him in high regard, and so. They did eventually listen to him. I mean, one really striking discovery we had was that on the same day that Hu Yaobang died, right, who's a reformist Communist Party leader whose death eventually set off the Tiananmen Square protests, on the same day that he died, Chen Shui-shen published an essay basically laying out his theory of, of social systems. And he said that, you know, society is made up of ideological, political, and economic subsystems, right? And that all of those need to be in harmony, and if they're not, the entire thing will fall into chaos, <laughs> right? And literally months later, you have China, who's a country where its economic subsystem was battered by inflation. Its ideological subsystem was confused and, and dealing with, struggling with how to incorporate ideas about democracy or deal or, or repudiate ideas about democracy. Its politics was fractured and, and chaos ensued, right? So anyway, his, his ideas kind of took hold and sort of worked their way into the, the sort of Communist Party mindset. And so, you know, over time, they really, you know, party leaders started to think in terms of system science. They, think, they started to think of society as an engineering problem. So do you, do you see at work what you might call cultural reflexes or some deep structures in the Chinese psyche that maybe bend Chinese elites toward kind of an embrace of this very hubristic social engineering uh, mentality? Uh, do you think that it's specific to Chinese communism, maybe, or to just the post-Mao leadership? Or, I mean, either way, you know, how would you plead to those who will, um, as they inevitably might, uh, accuse you of a kind of techno-Orientalism, 
when you're when you're kind of talking about this this mentality. Right. I mean, it's interesting you bring that up because that actually never really entered my mind. I mean, if you think of where these ideas came from, right? I mean, Norbert Wiener was an American, and a lot of the sort of the sort of utopian drive that I think you know animates leaders like Xi Jinping right now. I mean, uh, like that sort of you know has forebears in Soviet Russia, sure, um, in East Germany, right? I mean, I think you know the East German. East Germany obviously was was sort of the driver of one of the major evolutions of state surveillance. And they certainly had a, a very utopian idea. They just didn't have the tools, right? They didn't have the technology um, to, to pull it off the way that China has. So I don't know that, um, you know, I mean, it's, a, it's a very difficult to say whether this is, a, you know, whether uh, there's something about China, Chinese culture, Chinese politics that makes them more likely to adopt this. But certainly it's not. This is not in any way... Uh, unique to China. Yeah, no, that's that's great answer, Lisa. Uh, we touched on this earlier, but I want to drill down a little bit and 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 get you to say, you know, where you actually, well, both you and Josh come down on this this suggestion that Silicon Valley bears some culpability for what we're seeing today in China. I mean, accusations that Cisco, for example, and other you know network equipment manufacturers from the U.S. might have helped China to create its legendary you know Great Firewall under the Golden Shield program. Uh, that's been around for a very long time. You know, we, we've all seen them kind of trotted out in front of Congress and uh, called on the carpet there. Uh, what other ways, though, do you think that U.S. companies have maybe enabled surveillance in more recent years? And and what what's the extent of their culpability? Where do you come down on this? Yeah, maybe I, I'll set the scene first uh, okay. before I jump into my answer. So what we found was that U.S. tech companies have been involved with China's surveillance state from right from the start. So at the turn of the century, around year 2000, 2001, you already had uh, some really good surveillance researchers writing about how at one of China's first public security expos, you saw a ton of Western names there, all eager to sell to Chinese police. And this included you know, early Silicon Valley pioneers like Sun Microsystems, uh, Cisco, Canada's Nortown mm. Networks, which doesn't right. exist anymore, and then Germany's Siemens. All, all of them were there and eager to sell equipment uh, to Chinese police. Ultimately, Sun Microsystems did sell a system to Chinese police as well. It helped China build its first national fingerprint database. Fast forward 20 years later, uh, you're seeing like U.S. tech company involvement in the Chinese surveillance state in equally a deep way. But in this case, they're not selling systems, they're selling components. And we found everything from low-end components such as hard drives, which basically are the bedrock of like data storage in every surveillance system in China. Hard drives from Seagate and Western Digital, both American names, to chips, which power the heart of you know, applications such as facial recognition uh, and image recognition, mm-hmm. or you know, the, the type of applications that would distinguish a Uyghur from a Han Chinese on the street. The chips that these systems used are often sold by NVIDIA or Intel simply because China doesn't have a domestic equivalent that was powerful enough. So the U.S. company involvement in China's surveillance state runs very deep, uh, and it still does. You know, and, and beyond the supply chain relationship, you have the financial relationships too. Let's take a company like SenseTime, mm-hmm. for example. SenseTime is China's most valuable AI surveillance company. Some of its earliest investors before its IPO were U.S. names like Fidelity, Fidelity Capital, Silver Lake mm-hmm. Capital, Qualcomm was invested in SenseTime, IDG, you know, all, all these 
U.S. investors were in it early um, and were there to support its development. And I guess the way, you know, on, on the question of culpability, the way I would describe it is, you know, when, when U.S. companies first entered China several decades ago, what they had was blind optimism for the market, right? Mm. They were conveniently ignoring the risk. And at that point, China was such an easy and quick place for potential profit that every boardroom was discussing how fast you could expand into China. Um, fast forward to today, uh, in the last five years, we've seen a ton of reporting out on, in the foreign press about the atrocities in Xinjiang. And in more recent years, the U.S. government has taken a much stronger stance against U.S. companies selling technology to the surveillance state through the entity list or like investment blacklists. And that's really kind of almost, you know, shaken the companies and woken them up. So instead of like purely chasing commercial motivations and commercial priorities in China, they're starting to realize and starting to get cautious about the regulatory and the supply chain risk sure. um, to dealing with China. So now, you know, the company boardrooms, when they discuss China, no longer is it how fast can we grow our profits? It's, you know, let's comb through our supply chain to see if there's any sort of any involvement of Xinjiang forced labor, for example, uh, anything to trace any any of our supply chain components uh, to Xinjiang. Right. So it's hard, though, to draw the line. I mean, ideally, well, just not t- talking about the investment aspect of this, but just about the, the, the hardware, you, you do want to sort of target companies that are involved directly in facial recognition, maybe voice printing, uh, other biometric gathering. Uh, you know, all these other really intrusive practices uh, that's being done in Xinjiang. But the thing is that there are very few of these technologies uh, th- that, you know, are specific to these things at, at all. So when you go after broad, you know, categories rather than uh, specific end users, it becomes really tough. I mean, does it make sense, for example, to ban, say, NVIDIA for, uh, from selling GPUs to China? Because those aren't specific. I mean, all deep learning neural nets use GPUs, right? I mean, this is not specific to voice recognition. It's not specific to facial recognition. You know, or or Seagate, right? I mean, they make hard drives. Who knows? I mean, those are those are just commodities, essentially. Um, you know, who knows whether it's, you know, going to be used to store, you know, uh, surveillance data, surveillance video, or something completely innocuous, right? So that's that's tough. How do you what, what's the approach? So you hit on a very good point. Enforcement is tough. You know, in the past when the US used the trade blacklist against like military companies or, you know, end users that would supply uh, military equipment, for example, or supercomputers, right? You you had technologies that were single use or possibly even dual use. So it's a lot easier to kind of figure out who the end user was and who was buying it. Now, when you deal with something like chips, they're multiple use. You know, the GPUs that you just mentioned, it doesn't just go into AI surveillance. Yeah. It was originally created for gaming. It's created to speed up gaming yeah. when you, if you were a gamer. So that's the challenge. You know, these components are n- no longer that easy to regulate. In fact, something like the NVIDIA chip that was put on, you know, a, a blacklist last week, something like that can be bought off Taobao, yeah. for example, because there's so many multiple users for it. 
And when I was writing the story last week, I remember going on Taobao and I searched up that chip, and there were multiple sellers selling various iterations of that chip. That's how accessible it is, right? And and beyond just the fact that there are multiple users to these components, there are other other drawbacks and other challenges to enforcement. For example, transshipment or reselling, right? It's very hard for these companies to figure out who the end user is. That said, it doesn't mean they shouldn't try. Um, and I think what could be done is perhaps more enforcement or more resources put into enforcement on the U.S. side, or even just you know multilateral agreements with allies that you know, it, it can't just be the U.S. that's not selling these chips to Chinese surveillance companies because often Chinese surveillance companies can just buy them off the European country country or. Uh, another, you know, second kind of middleman destination. So do you mean enforcement so that no NVIDIA GPUs end up in China? Is that the end game here? I think it's more of to go through your supply chain and know who your end customers are better. Mm. Because for companies, it's it's so easy for them to say, I don't know who my end customers are. You know, these are multiple use chips. But that's a bit of a cop-out because you can try to figure out who your end customers are. You know, it, it's supply chains are opaque, but doesn't mean you can't have better visibility. You just have to try. That's fair enough. Hey, Josh, let me turn to you. Uh, you guys wrote about a Bronx public defender named Caitlin Jackson, a uh, total hero, by the way, uh, who had one of the very first, if not the first, facial recognition cases uh, in the American legal system. A man accused of stealing a bundle of socks from a TJ Maxx and then brandishing a box cutter uh, at the security guard who supposedly confronted him. He had, you know, an, an image from a security camera run through some uh, facial recognition software that resulted in a man being charged. So, so I won't spoil the ending here, but as I read this account, I kept wondering something about China, actually, uh, even as I was reading about, you know, the Bronx, uh, about, you know, law enforcement in China and about the Chinese criminal justice system. It, it occurred to me that it might not be about technology at all, that it really doesn't matter. It might not be that it's just that, you know, Chinese people have like a different relationship with technology than maybe we do in the West. Um, it, it reminded me of something that I, I talked about with uh, Rachel Stern from UC Berkeley and Ben Liebman uh, from Columbia, who are both scholars of, of law in China. And it's something that they once told me, which was that basically the faith in things like, you know, mandatory minimums or algorithmic sentencing, uh, it grows out of basically a lack of faith in the the human part of, of the, the justice system. They, they think that's what makes it unjust is like, you know, the susceptibility of people in the legal system uh, to, you know, corruption, uh, to, you know, uh, to Guanxi or whatever. They don't have a faith in, in the arbitrary and highly personalistic legal system. So they prefer these kind of algorithmic outcomes. And I was thinking that might be uh, the case in China and why it is it seems to be less hung up on uh, facial recognition as part of uh, law enforcement. W- what do you think of that idea? I think I mean I think you're on to something there. I, I mean I will I will I will I'll preface this by saying um, you know the appeal of the technological solution is kind of universal, right? I mean it is like that is the case in the U.S. right that hmm. that. You know, one of the reasons police departments love facial recognition is 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 that it, it it's easy, right? It's like the right. machine told me, right? Like it, it sort of takes 
uh, responsibility out of your hands, right? Yeah. And so, but I do think, you know, when you're talking about China, I mean, there is, I mean, you know, we've all spent a lot of time in China and I'm sure lots of listeners of this podcast have as well. You know, there is a just yawning lack of faith in the uh, in, in the human beings running the legal system in China, yeah, right? And yeah. And it, and sometimes it's not even their fault, right? It's just that the the system itself is corrupted. If you're, a, I mean, if you're a if you're a judicial official in China, you are subject to just immense pressures of of all kinds, right? Um, oh, for sure. Yeah. Not just political, but but even just sort of more straight up corrupt. Um, so I think you know, I think in, given that situation, it, yeah, it's it's not surprising that that some Chinese people would actually sort of prefer to have algorithmic systems. Uh, involved, right? Because th- they perceive them wrongly often, uh, but they perceive them as being fair, right? And as being objective and impartial. So yeah, I think, you know, like if, if you're confronting a system like that, you know, this idea that a, the, that a machine is weighing in instead of a human being, like a, a sort of supposedly incorruptible machine, like I can, you know, that's certainly, um, that is certainly, uh, you can you can understand why people would would find still, that attractive. Still, I find that like in, in China, you're not seeing people writing best-selling books like, you know, Weapons of Math Destruction, which I think is like the best pun of all time. Uh, yeah, yeah. And you know, a great a book. book. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, there are quite a few books in this in this genre, you know, that are sort of alerting us to the, uh, the inherent biases in a lot of these supposedly impartial algorithms. And that's happening a lot in the United States. I mean, we're, we're very skeptical of this. I think anyone would read, you know, that's TJ Maxx story and root for Caitlin Jackson, right? In, in America. I mean, and, and I'm just imagining it, it finding a different audience, it landing differently in China. <laughs> anyway, who knows? Well, I mean, in China, they actively, uh, they actively develop AI that treats ethnic groups differently, right? Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. yeah. Hey, so Lisa, this is something I've, I've really, I'm really curious to ask you about. Um, how do we make sense of China's new personal information protection law? I mean, is it just rank hypocrisy or is there a way to understand it? Um, and same, same with the data protection law or the, the data protection regulations or the, the new algorithm law. I mean, because on the, on the face of it, you can see these things seem to be kind of enlightened, right? Um, you know, demanding a lot of transparency in the way that algorithms are deployed. Uh, and, you know, this is something we haven't really seen yet and we probably really desperately need in the United States. Um, I know Kendra Schaefer, uh, who is just a brilliant uh, writer on technology issues and policy issues, she was actually arguing... Uh, that the data security law and all of that should be understood as actually China taking steps to create, you know, viability in in the data market. That you need to have that kind of order and security. You need to have it all locked down tightly before you can actually make a market of it. And I thought that was a really uh, an interesting, you know, possibility as to why we're seeing this approach. But it feels like China, in some ways, is is ahead of us in in this regard. Uh, so should we think of these things just in terms of the CCP wanting to exert control for control's sake? Or how should how should we understand this new spate of, of laws regarding digital data? The way I see it is a little differently. I think mm-hmm. it's very practical for the Chinese government to introduce such laws. I mean, the party is an authoritarian state. 
but it still has to answer to its citizens, right? It still has to stay in power. Yes, there are no elections, but you can't ever, you know, you can't have a riot against you or a huge protest against you. And privacy issues have, and data privacy and data security issues have festered for a long time. You know, we we flicked at it earlier. The incidents, the data leaks that led to this whole rise of privacy awareness in the bigger cities. So the city, so China really knows that China knows that it needs to do something, and that's why it has this regulation. And in some ways, you know, it's ahead of other countries too. Not every country has a personal information protection law. Uh, so just, I mean, kudos to China for introducing such laws. At the same time, though, they're really smart because the introduction of such laws doesn't doesn't change the political dynamic in China. Right. It doesn't change the fact that if national security or state security wants certain data, right. they can't have it, or there are guardrails or checks and balances preventing them from having it. Right. Right. So in a way, it's they're, they're having their cake and eating it. Exactly. Um, There's a quote you have from Jamie Horsley in that that says, you know, it doesn't change the status quo as far as government access to data at all. And I can I can break that down, you know, for the personal information protection law, it, it protects your personal information as a Chinese consumer from greedy corporates or, you know, real estate agents who are scanning your face as you enter a showroom to try and pitch you a flat or decide how to serve you, right? All these abuses that's being prevented. Uh, and the other thing that the law does do is it does hold government agencies accountable for data leaks or, you know, for cybersecurity. It makes government agencies aware of the need of cybersecurity to reduce all the data leaks, data leaks that we saw, that we talked about earlier. Yeah, like the Shanghai but police. But when it comes to state security and national security agencies, like that's an exception. There's nothing there stopping them from gathering data if needed. And if anything, it just makes things more opaque because these agencies don't really have to they don't have to be transparent about when they're taking data or what sort of data they're taking. Thanks. That really clears things up a lot. Josh, unsurprisingly, you guys devote a whole chapter to the social credit system, which is a subject about which, you know, there is a lot of confusion out there, not just outside of China. I mean, I've done a show with um, with Jeremy Dom about this. Uh, he gets a big shout out in your book. And, and clearly his pushback on the initial reporting about the system had a pretty big impact um, on the discourse on this and on your writing, I suppose. Um so I don't think we need to get into this in too much detail, but just for those who didn't hear that episode, let me erect a, a, a confessedly exaggerated straw man of, of what the, the popular understanding of social credit is, and you can tell me what that gets completely wrong. So the popular understanding is the social credit system is a nationwide system that evaluates citizens' trustworthiness and assigns them a single numerical score on uh, their online behavior. It's based on, you know, their behavior in social media, their ideological purity, their, their conformity to the law, uh, their reliability, um, and the reliability of their friends, actually, and acquaintances. Uh, they lose points for spending too much time playing games, for obviously criticizing the party or the government, uh, and for minor crimes like jaywalking. What does that get wrong? <laughs> Actually, I mean, it is remarkable uh, the the degree to which that that story still does kind of hold. I mean, it's it, in fact, it's like the one example of Chinese surveillance that your sort of average American uh, can 
you know, can access, right? right you right. say state surveillance, so like, oh, it's social credit. I mean, so that picture um, is very exaggerated, although it is essentially the the essentially captures the first version of the story that we all encountered uh, back in, I think, 2015. Right. What it gets wrong, I mean, it gets a lot of things wrong. Obviously, there is no single score. You know, there is no single system, actually. It's a sort of very fragmented system. Um, it, you know, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't evaluate your friends. Um, it, it doesn't, it's not algorithmic. Um, in fact, it doesn't even really use AI at all. Hmm. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so, I mean, essentially what social, the social credit system is, is, you know, I mean, it has, it certainly has ambitions, right? Um, you know, and, and it is intended as a, uh, or at least it was originally intended as a fairly comprehensive sort of social control mechanism, right? It did, you know, it was trying to address this, um, what what is what was undeniably a sort of crisis of of sort of credibility in Chinese society, especially in the economy, right? It, it, during the Hu Jintao era, um, you know, I think a lot of people in China felt that like, you know, that there was just people no were- trust, yeah. Yeah, no one trusted anyone else. Yeah. And how do you how do you have a society like um, like that? And so there was, you know, it, it it is a system that attempts to expand the notion of credit and credibility uh, broadly beyond simple sort of financial measures like you have in the uh, in, traditionally in the United States. Um, yeah. But the way that it goes about it is very haphazard. It's very piecemeal. Um, you know, some it's mostly based, in fact, on on court blacklists. You know, so it's so there's the you know the courts have developed the system of blacklists for people who didn't pay their debts, their who didn't who didn't um, fulfill judgments against them, um, and those have sort of been expanded, right? So that now if you if you are found misbehaving in some way, um, not paying a bill, that not only will you be punished by the court, but that you may not be able to buy a plane ticket, right? right. You may not be able to get a high-speed rail ticket or stay in a nice hotel. Sometimes maybe if it's bad enough, someone will call your phone and they'll get an automated message saying that they are calling a, a an untrustworthy person. Um, <laughs> so, uh, I mean, it is a system. It is real. It is not quite as as comprehensive or, or um, as Black Mirror-esque as it originally seemed. Yeah. I mean, I don't actually blame a lot of the early incorrect reporting on, on the reporters themselves, but this is one of those phenomena that where I feel like uh, they, these ideas were actually reinforced, even if they were completely wrong, by, by the efforts of local governments to try to, you know, talk up and show off their, their capabilities. And this is something that you guys talk about in this great chapter about, you know, Potemkin, what did you call it? Um, Potemkin AI. Potemkin AI. Right, 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 yeah. right. Um, I mean, it reminds me of the way that, you know, so many people think now of China as monolithic. And, you know, I'm always saying, you know, no, China's really not monolithic. But, you know, when you think about it, the party always wants to appear monolithic. So how are you going to, you know, blame people for thinking <laughs> that China's monolithic, right? Um, you guys argue that it really doesn't matter whether uh, it does everything that it purports to do. You know, a lot of these AI systems and, and stuff. The thing that matters is that the party is able, you know, to convince enough people about the Potemkin AI or whatever we have about, you know, its omniscience. What's your sense of, of how well they've done, at least in this regard? Lisa, do you have a sense of like, does your average Chinese person now believe that they are pretty thoroughly surveilled and has this, you know, sort of uh, served as a pretty big uh, inducement to good behavior? Yeah, I, 
I'm pretty sure the regular Chinese have no idea about the propaganda aspect of the state surveillance system mm. in China. And, you know, I can't blame them because Josh and I were completely duped at the start as well. And the only reason why we discovered that maybe the state surveillance system wasn't all it was cracked up to be was when we were trying to chase down state media reports talking about surveillance systems finding missing children, for example, or surveillance systems in a certain city that uh, provide a ton of benefits to the people in the residents, for example, helping people with dementia find their mm -hmm. way home because they would be spotted on this on the surveillance cameras and you know even though they couldn't find their way home like the police would be able to identify where they went or in which direction and still be able to send them home and we we were surprised in our reporting that whenever there were a couple of instances when we tried to go down to the same place where a state media report had you know had purported that something something had happened and thanks to the help of the surveillance system. And when we went there, we just found <laughs> that either the story was half true, like half baked, or we couldn't find any evidence of it all yeah. at all. Um, and I'll, I'll give you one example. There, there was a state media report that we saw talking about Hangzhou Xiaochu, um, like a residence compound with a new facial recognition system that was helping find missing children uh -huh. and senior citizens with dementia. And I went down and I was talking to a ton of residents trying to figure out, do you know a family who has been helped by the surveillance system, right? And I spent an entire day there talking to everyone. And after that, I, I walked to the security the security um, compound, like the management office and the security office that's just next this jet that's within the compound itself. Mm -hmm. um, and I asked, you know, I, I saw this amazing report. And while we were talking, I saw playing on loop on the video camera on the wall, this promotional video about the facial recognition system helping to find a lost child and bring that person home. And I was so stunned when the lady at the counter said, oh, that was me. And we were acting. We were just trying to show people in the residence compound like the benefits of the facial recognition system <laughs> oh my god you exposed it completely that's amazing <laughs> wow wow so it was you know it was one of those aha moments when i realized okay it, the state surveillance system doesn't have to work the way you think uh, the way the chinese communist party keeps telling everyone that it has to work people just have to believe that it works that way either the good parts or the bad parts right yeah. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I was going to say, I mean, I, I'm actually, I, I don't know if you had this experience too, Kaiser, but the degree to which people internalize the, the notion of being watched when they're living in China is really fascinating, right? In the sense that you, you know, it's, it's this kind of like buzzing paranoia in the back of your brain that you don't even know is there, right? Um, and I just remember, I mean, I only really became totally aware of it uh, after I got kicked out and, and like landed in the Tokyo airport. Um, realizing I was never going to probably go back to China, at least not in the near future, and just feeling this immense weight lift off my shoulders, right? Of not having to think about, oh, am I being listened to? Is, is like, am I, like are things I'm saying in my apartment going to end up in a recording somewhere, right? Or is someone else tracking my my movements? You know, I think it's a, the sort of thing that, you know, um, that a lot of people, if they're aware of what's happening, aware of the surveillance in China, they just kind of, it, it just sits there in the back of their minds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, you were in a particularly sensitive profession, but I think that's uh, broadly applicable. Hey, so um, ultimately, 
maybe this is the, the final question for you guys. What can people who are deeply concerned about rampant surveillance, especially you know people like me or many of the listeners who have a foot in the West and a foot in, in, in China, and who don't like how things are going in either the West or in China in terms of surveillance, what, what can we do with respect to shrinking privacy? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, honestly, I don't know on, on an individual level um, how much power anybody has to affect what's happening in China. You know, I mean, it's uh, the Communist Party has, they, they, they have, this is a, this is a huge priority for them, right? And, and they're going to do what they're going to do. I think, you know, the, the best way democracies can fight back against that is to actually figure out what they believe, right? And to, and to, to sort of, Develop an alternative vision for a future uh, of a future with these technologies in existence, right? I mean, state surveillance is here, right? It's not going away. It exists in the United States, um, and you know, China has a very clear vision about how that you know how that looks in authoritarian countries, right? right? But there isn't yet a really clear notion in the democratic world about what what that looks like. We can't um, agree and, whether Edward Snowden is a hero or a traitor. We can't, exactly. Right? right. You know, and like, or, you know, you know, I mean, if you look at the EU, right. I mean, the, the EU has always been, uh, generally had a really sort of strict regulatory approach to data. Um, everyone was saying, you know, early, you know, a few years ago when they were there, they passed their first really big piece of privacy legislation that they were going to kill innovation, Right, because they weren't allowing tech companies to to sort of trade data freely, right. um, and and the EU is now about to pass. They have a draft law that would ban uh, the use of real time surveillance by governments or maybe by anyone um, permanently. Right, um, whereas in the US, it's just a, it's kind of schizophrenic. Right, I mean some some places are, are, have in, instituted facial recognition bans, others are embracing it, and um, so I think what it really comes down to is people. You know, as, as an American, for example, you know, being aware of these issues and thinking about how they affect you and then voting accordingly. Right. But and and I mean, to make it sort of very clear, to give a very clear example of how this could affect people, if you live in a state with a, an abortion ban, American police have immense power to, to request data from companies like Google or they can buy it from data brokers about who is visiting abortion clinics, hmm. who is searching for uh, who is searching about abortion. And that is a way in which state surveillance is going to affect directly, I think, a lot of, a lot of people in this country. Um, and, it, and there hasn't really been a serious public discussion about that yet. Well, let's hope this book helps to spark one. Uh, Lisa, any last thoughts on that question? I think on my end, it's, it's very important for countries globally to figure out a global standard, a global accepted standard on how to regulate new technologies like AI-enabled surveillance right. cameras. Because I do believe that China wants to be a responsible global player. And once you have these, the, the reason why they've skewed off in the direction they have been is because there is no globally accepted regulation of these technologies. And that's allowed China to experiment. And, and we know China's great at you know, moving fast and breaking things, right. even though that's Mark Zuckerberg's um, motto. So I think it's very important to just you know, come together and decide how we want to use these technologies. What sort of future do we want um, to build with these technologies and try and get China a seat at the, at the table and get them involved and 
you know, try and institute change that way. Yeah, I'm, I'm not optimistic because, you know, when you think about all the really disruptive technologies that, I mean, sitting here now, it's it's blindingly obvious are going to be massively disruptive. AI, genetic engineering, you know, CRISPR and all that stuff. Metaverse. Yeah, and, and self-driving cars and all these things. You know, there are two countries in the world that lead by, you know, a huge stretch, everyone else, and those are China and the United States, and these are the two that are least communicative right now. So it's uh, it's really uh, kind of horrifying. Well, on that cheery note, um, let me thank you both, Lisa Lin, Josh Chin, for taking the time, uh, and what a great book you've written. Once again, the book is called Surveillance State, Inside China's Quest to Launch a New era of social control. It is on sale now. It is subtle and it is uh, really wide, wide ranging and, and beautifully written. So congrats to both of you. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Kaiser. Let's move on now to recommendations. First, a super quick reminder that the Seneca podcast is part of the China Project. And if you want to support the work that we do with Seneca and all the other great shows in the Seneca Network, then please do subscribe to Access, which gets you all sorts of fabulous perquisites, not the least of which is, of course, our daily newsletter. Uh, it would be a bargain if that were the only thing you got, but it also unlocks the formidable paywall and uh, gets you this podcast early, usually on Mondays instead of on Thursdays. So sign up at thechinaproject.com. All right, let's march on to recommendations. Lisa, what you got for us? So Kaiser, I, I wish I had something more intelligent, but recently everything I've been reading is maternity related. There's nothing wrong with that. So I guess my recommend. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, but everyone knows that motherhood is something you can't read up to prepare on, prepare up for. <laughs> yeah, so the book I'm recommending today uh, is The Mayo Clinic mm -hmm. Guide. For a healthy pregnancy, yeah. yeah, it's essentially chronicles, you know, the the nine months of your pregnancy, what's going to happen, what sort of um, what you should look out for in checks, uh, how you should eat, you know, diet and nutrition stuff. Sorry, it's not. <laughs> it, it's probably applicable for only half of your listeners out there, but <laughs> I hope that's helpful. Well, no, it certainly is. I, I actually read a bunch of those, like you know what to expect when you're expecting. My parents grew up on that kind of Doctor Benjamin Spock stuff, uh, baby and childcare, and so they they the whole every time I talked to them. Every, everything they said was, you need to trust your instincts. You know, you know, you know, countless millennia of humans have been doing this, and uh, you know, we weren't wouldn't be here but for that. They know how to do it, so you do too. Uh, but you know, I, I still read the books. <laughs> I wouldn't have known to take you know to have my wife take so much folic acid otherwise, right? Good, good stuff. Thanks, Lisa. Uh, and and the, so it's the Mayo Clinic's book on, on it. And um, Josh, what about you? What you got? Well, first, I just want to say Spock babies represent. Um, All right. Yeah, you were raised. a Spock baby too. Yeah. 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 Um, so I have two two recommendations. Uh, the first one um, is uh, The Backstreets, um, which is a, a short novel by, by Pirhat Tursun, uh, who is a, a Uyghur writer from Xinjiang. He's actually very close with uh, with Tahir Hamad, the, the sort of mm -hmm, character mm -hmm. who leads off our book. Um but, Didn't uh, Darren Byler translate that? It's translated by Darren Byler. Yeah, um, yeah Darren, who writes column for us. Yeah, Right, Excellent. yeah, yeah. So uh, Tursun, I think he disappeared in, into the camps in 2018. Uh, and I believe this is the first 
Uyghur novel, these first modern Uyghur novel translated into English. Um, I have to confess, I'm still still only partway through it, but it's um, it is really striking. It tells the the story of a of a Uyghur migrant uh, traveling to Arumchi to escape poverty, which of course is a very extremely common story. Um, mm-hmm. Has kind of sort of shades of, of Camus and Kafka. It's very ex- sort of existentialist. It uses winter pollution as a kind of uh, very multi layered metaphor for for what what life is like for Uyghurs in, in modern China. Mm. It's not an easy read. Um, but it is, I think, a really rewarding one. And I think it feels like one of those novels that 20 years from now will sort of become part of the literary canon for, for this era of, of Communist Party rule. And then my second, my second recommendation is, um, is The Walk by, uh, by Kenji Lopez. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Great chef. Excellent chef, science-based chef. Um, and uh, I used to be, a, a, I don't know if I've ever said this on the podcast or talked about it, but I, I, was, a, I was a sous chef in a previous life. Oh, you were. I oh, was. Right. I was. At a, at a, have you seen the bear yet? I have not. No, it's on. My, oh, you need to see the bear. It's on oh, my list. It's on, on my list. list. Um, I was. I wasn't necessarily a good sous chef, but uh, but I. But hope springs eternal. Uh, and um, and one of you know one of the things I've always sort of struggled with, especially being half Chinese, and it's, I mean it's really pained me being half Chinese, is that I'm been terrible uh, at wok cooking. Really, and I could never get. Well, I, you know, I could do it, but I could never get. You know, wok hay. You know, the elusive. Yeah. Uh, the magic of wok cooking. Uh, I could never get it. And and um, so Kenji Lopez has done this sort of really, this book is, I mean, it's everything about wok cooking, but in, in his sort of normal, in his, in his typical style, he sort of breaks it down scientifically and attempts to sort of explain, um, you know, how how the extremely high temperatures and like and the thin thinness of the wok work to sort of cook food and how like the, the wok toss basically cooks food in the steam that rises up around the sides of the wok. Hmm. Um, and then there are, there are sort of various hacks for getting the, the sort of wake flavor that, that, oh, that I love that. Loves, so. I, I, I live for that. Yeah. Uh, just, uh, we did, we did a cabbage like that recently that, that achieved that. And I was delighted. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The Holy grail. So Lisa's recommendation was about sort of, you know, the beginning of very important, you know, life stage. Uh, mine is about uh, one that comes about 18 years later. Um, I, I just paid a ghastly sum of money uh, in out-of-state tuition for my daughter uh, just a couple of days ago. Um, and then I started reading this great new book by the journalist Will Bunch. The book is After the Ivory Tower Falls, How College Broke the American Dream and Blew Up Our Politics and How to Fix It. I haven't gotten to the how to fix it part yet, but you know the blowing up part is just, it's just making me shake my little fist in rage at the, the ghastly, truly ghastly sums of money I just paid out to the University of, of Wisconsin-Madison. Uh, but great school. I'm, I, I love it up there. And so she's, she's in good hands. I got lots of friends up there. And so uh, I'm sure it'll be worth it. She's already thriving. But a really good book. I, I highly recommend it. It's um, He's you know really good stylist and, and uh, deep reflections on, on the whole sort of journey from the GI Bill to our present predicament with, with college. So check that out. Lisa, thanks so much for joining. Thank you for having us. It's our pleasure. Josh, great to see you again, man. Yeah, always great talking, Kaiser. How long are you going to be in the States? I think we're here for uh, basically through the end of the month, and then we have to head back to the Asia time zone to, to prep for the party congress. All right. Well, yeah. I'm going to try to manage to see you some at some point, I hope. Yeah, that would be great. All right. That would be great. All right. Thanks so much. Uh, 
The Seneca Podcast is powered by The China Project and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. We would be delighted if you would drop us an email at Seneca at thechinaproject.com or just give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts as this really does help people discover the show. Meanwhile, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at, at thechinaproj, no E-C-T. And be sure to check out all the other shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.